Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Billy Munger. And hi, I'm Johnny Herbert. And welcome back to Lift the Lid, the podcast that takes you flat out around the world of Formula One. Johnny, right now, another team radio episode. You got it. Been a little while, hasn't it? Yeah, it has been a little while. I haven't been through all the questions so far, so it's going to be a nice surprise eventually when we do actually get to a few that are off of my screen at the moment. But should we should we start? Yeah, you start us off, mate. Okay. Oh, I've started one here. This is where I'm going to sort of embarrass myself once again. Cecilia says Cecilia I'm thinking that says Cecilia Cecilia there you go yeah I think there's a song in there somewhere mate so I apologize yes I do apologize if we one of us has got it right I hope yeah one of us I believe <laughs> oh, this happens quite a lot to me anyway right I uh, I have a question hopefully it's not a stupid one hopefully it is a stupid one <laughs> how are the sectors determined is the track simply divided into thirds what determines a stint? Thank you, and love the podcast. Good question. That there's a lot to right. into there, isn't there, Johnny? There is a lot. Yes, a lot, a lot, a lot. Sectors, yes. Well, when you see sectors on the basically on the screen that you gain qualifying, for example, there are three sectors. Yeah, uh, but drivers don't have those three sectors in the car. Yeah, we don't get sector times in the car, do we? We just get an overall lap time, but the sectors are more for people watching at home so they can see how people are getting on in different parts of the circuit I yes guess. but the teams do well the drivers do have micro sectors micro don't sectors. they they have micro sectors in it yes you're right there is a there's that old lap time at the end of it but they get micro splits and i can't remember exactly how they're all set up but they're literally literally set up I should find out a little bit more about this like every 20 or 30 meters and they yeah, know exactly where they are. Because I don't know if sometimes you see it on their dash. If you look on their dash, they, they, they will have where their splits are either red or green. And of course, when it's green, they know that they're on a on a, on a a faster lap. When it's red, obviously, it's a slower lap. And they also get live tracking of their lap, don't they? In terms of in the screen, they, they can see how much they're up on their previous best yes. lap time. Yeah, so they have so much information. Again, when I was raised, I think the same with you, Billy, the data that we had was just basically three sectors. That was sort yeah. of the only thing you had. But in three sectors, there could be two corners, but there could be five corners. There could be a complete, a different tracks, obviously, will vary massively. So they have an ability to really know exactly where they are. But also, when they study the data, they will, will be able to go into those micro uh, splits to be able to work out where they're losing time. You hear it on the radio where they're, they're told you're losing, breaking, you know, I remember Lewis and Nico, I remember there was a lot of banter about it, and it still happens today, you know, you're losing a turn three under braking or acceleration or whatever it may be. So they're, they're told instantly when they're in a race situation, because obviously they have time to, to adjust to that. But actually in a qualifying situation, 
they've got to find out where they're losing time. And of course, your teammates, the the best one to have that sort of data knowledge and then I'd be able to try, try and improve your time. But of course, then also they have the data of the other teams that they can yeah. analyze what they're doing and where they're quicker. And then you can try and improve yourself in that particular micro sector that you have around the circuit. So they have a lot of tools that enable them to sort of get them the best out of out of the car, which in normal respects, going back to my day and probably in your day, Billy, where you didn't have that that ability, didn't have that data. You didn't know. Yeah, I didn't really have access to that no. data when I was racing a few years ago, but we definitely sure. we still had the live lap time. So Live lap time and yeah. splits. So yeah. You'd be able to see, okay, like if you do the first stint in qualifying, the first, you know, running qualifying and you were you were two temps off pole, when you're on yeah. your next lap and the second, you know, run and, and qualifying, you could have live tracking on your your screen. So if you go through the yeah. first three or four corners and you're two temps up, you're thinking, okay, I'm sort of, you know, that, uh, this is a good start to lap. You know where you're at. So it was more, you had to more put it together as a bit more of a jigsaw rather than having yes. all the information at hand at the time. So it was a yeah. bit more thinking, I guess, required rather than just having it all on your screen like the current Formula 1 drivers do. Yeah, and a sector, again, when I was racing as well, same thing. That sector was quite a big sector. But yeah. Of course, now, with that data I was talking about, they can literally, when they come back in, go, you're losing it on the entry, mid-corner, exit. Yeah, they can, they can get, break you know, it down. Get the whole, and that's, again, that's not just your teammate, that's everybody else. Yeah. So it's quite amazing, the information that they, that they get. Yeah, it really is. And then um, there was there's another part to that question, which is just about what determines a stint. Yeah. So a stint is quite simply, you know, the amount of time you spent on the tyres you start the race, your first stint ends when you come in for your pit stop. So yeah. it's, a, it's simple. as simple yeah. as that, really. Until you decide to come into the pits, make a pit stop, you're on that current stint. So normally when you hear them talking about how their tyres have performed, they're talking about up until the point where they obviously degraded to the point where they had to come in and change tyres, stuff like that. Yeah, but also during that stint, they still get all the data from the tires and how they how they're working uh, du- during that stint. So they know what tire te- tire pressures they start with. They know where those tire temperatures get to. Then they can sometimes adjust those tire sort of um, pressures for for the next time they get the the same set of tires on. So they can still adjust. So it's a good. It gives you a good understanding of what the tire is able to do in that particular stint, and then you can actually adjust it for for the next time you put that same tire on, or sometimes even a different tire. You know it's reacting in a very very different way. Yeah, it's uh, interesting stuff. A lot of data, a lot of information that modern Formula One has. Good question from yeah. there from uh, Cecilia. I'm going with Johnny. Went with something. <laughs> I'm going to stick with you with that one. Okay, right. We've got another uh, question here from Tony. Hi, Johnny and Billy. I would like to ask you if Valentino Rossi had said yes to drive for Ferrari Formula One in 2006-7, do you think he would have made the top 10? Also, Johnny, I was a member of your fan club. I met your mum and dad at the Autosport show. So that's a question from Tony there. That's nice. I can see a smile on your face, Johnny, right now. Yeah, good to, to hear about Tony being a member of your fan club. But what you, what you make yeah. of his question, Valentino Rossi, if he joined up with Ferrari in 06, 07, would he have made the top 10? I mean, it would have been damn hard for him to make the top 10. I'll put that out there. As talented as Valentino Rossi is, four wheels and two wheels, it's a different driving style altogether. Yeah, well, he's, he's tried many, many things. I know he, he did a tiny bit of Carlton when he was younger. I know he did a little bit of rally yeah. as well. We know he did that. Obviously, a lot of, a lot of mileage, actually, in that Ferrari. Uh, mainly in Maranello to try and sort of get up to speed. And he does a lot of GT racing now, doesn't he? Yeah, GT racing now as well. Yeah, and so it, it's good that we see someone who's come from the two-wheel world and has that uh, ability to jump into four, you know, and do very, very well. Would he have been a John Surtee? John, I'm glad you brought his name up there because as soon as <laughs> I was reading that question, I just instantly yeah. thought of John Surtees because, you know, he's the only person ever to win a World Formula One World Championship and then win a world championship on a bike as well. Yes, yeah. So he's from the sort of the late fifties, sixties, and then early seventies when he did his own team of racing. So John Surtees is a real star of two and four. Um, and going back to Valentino now, 
as I look at it, and this is always just the way I try and analyze what's going on. He, he did a lot of mileage in that Ferrari. There was a lot of positivity coming out of what times he was sort of doing or the speed he was doing. I mean, there was times, but speed he was doing in the car. Uh, but it never happens. Then you sort of go, well, why, why didn't it happen? There was all this positivity about it, but it never, it, he never got given that chance. Now, Ferrari were obviously trying very hard to sort of give him that yeah. chance. Being an Italian yeah, he was Italian, one. he's got such a big following, yeah. you know, it made sense yes. that he was quick enough for him to be in the car, wouldn't it? Yeah, so then there's your question mark, yeah. was he quick enough? And that's the thing, we don't really know, you can... Talk to certain people and say, yes, he was unbelievable. Now, if he was unbelievable, then you would have gone, he should have been he in, in have the been car. A, so was he quick? I, I believe he was. I believe he was quick. It's interesting with um, Tony's question that he was only asking, would he have made the top 10? So as much as Ferrari's yeah. ambitions would have been for to have two drivers that are capable of winning Grand Prix, and maybe that's where Valentino wasn't quite up to the well, speed. Well, how easy is it to get in the top 10? It's not easy. It's, it's not easy to get in the top 10. So that's what yeah. I mean. It's not easy to get in F1. Yeah. <laughs> Let alone win races, win championships, get points, get in, the, you know, get in that top 10. It's, it's mighty hard. But Ferrari aren't going to put him in unless they think he can win championships and win races. So I think that's what I'm, I guess I'm getting at is even if he somehow would have been capable of getting in the top 10 in a Formula 1 Grand Prix, which like you said is so hard and so difficult before that wouldn't have been Ferrari's they wouldn't have settled for that would they as a team no. so which is why it probably didn't happen no and probably to the answer to the question could he have gotten the top 10 well I think he could have done um every all the stars would probably have to have aligned to a certain degree it's very unfairly saying it because I don't know really the true uh true yeah. speed that Valentino had but I think he did have speed and but it, 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 he, he could have achieved it I think yes could he have achieved more Probably is my question. Yeah, could have achieved more that I I'm not one hundred percent sure. You know, as a character, you know, I've made it multiple times. He's a funny, lovely, very motivated, very skillful man. Um, but maybe he felt it wasn't quite there because at that period, you know, it's Valentino, the domination of MotoGP. I'd love to see a, a crossover race at some point in time during the year. Uh, maybe at the end of the season, get all the <laughs> MotoGP drivers in Formula I'd One cars. Like your style, Formula One drivers in MotoGP on the bike. That'd be cool, see. wouldn't it? That would be interesting because I always just think that raw speed translates across. So I'd feel like you'd you'd maybe see some drivers in Formula One that would jump onto a bike and just naturally be able to get a lot of speed out of it, and vice versa for you know some of the guys that have thrashing it around on the bikes to jump in a Formula 1 car see who who could take to it end of the season yeah. crossover race like that okay who would you who would you think would do the the other way 4-2 who would be the the winner on the of current that grid? one yeah well, I know obviously Lewis has spent a bit of time with he Van, has. You know, Rossi hasn't he and yes they did the a whole, swap they did a little bit of a swap just those two and, and had a go so you'd probably put um, Lewis in the mix <laughs> Uh, I'm trying would. to think who else. Yeah, I the think. others. Max Verstappen does a lot of track days uh, with his dad, but that's GT cars yeah, and that's other cars that they've got. Wheels. They're four wheels. Yeah, I don't think they do two wheels. I don't know. I don't have anybody else. There's much to mind mountain biking, but that's a very yeah. different, a different thing. I know it sounds funny to say, but I think a lot of the slightly older generation of Formula One drivers would probably take to bikes better than the younger generation. I feel like, you know, your Lando Norris's, your George Russell's, your Charles Leclerc's, you know, they're still, you know, in their early 20s. And I can't imagine them of spending much time on bikes because you grow up and you're literally go-kart, 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 single-seaters, single-seaters, Formula One. Like, it doesn't really leave much time for them to have tried these other other sports and tried, you know, going flat out on bikes where well, I feel like the older generation guys have maybe had more you know experience to to give that sort of stuff a go so I'm thinking you know Lewis Hamilton's maybe like a Kevin Magnussen or someone like that I think could you know jump onto two wheels and be pretty good could be yeah I, it could be but it, but they don't do it it's that's the interesting thing they don't Blue. seem to do it the only other guy that I know and probably many of you do as well was Michael Schumacher yeah. Michael did a lot of stuff on like a I think he had like a super bike for you did a bit of track thing, but he also did and I don't know what they call it. It's like on a on a cart circuit, 
and it's got little slicks. It looks a little bit like sort of an off-roader, but they sort of drift them around. He did a bit of that okay. competitively as well. You know, he did that. Look, he fell off a fell off a couple of times, but he wasn't bad on that, from what well, from what I understand. So, Mike was the only other one I can think of that did actually do a little bit of proper biking. Yeah, I'd be interested as well to know whether if you did a crossover race and allowed you know the bike guys to try Formula One, Formula One guys to, to try, you know, the MotoGP side of things. I'd be interested to see whether that they would learn anything that would make them better in their own regards, you know, make, would they make them better all-round drivers? Would they be able to, you know, find something and go, oh, I might try that in a Formula One car and it works, you know? Like, yeah, little details like that that always fascinate me. Yeah, I think there'd be a certain sense that actually might cross over yeah. to the other side as well. It may not be a, a, a skill, but it just may be a feel. Yeah. That actually, that's why I say about the sim thing. The sim crosses over just because it's sort of stored in your brain of this numbness, floating, oh, like you said, about the floatiness that you get in a sim. But there are occasions you get a floaty racing car, especially a Formula 1 car. Under braking especially is, is one of those. So I think that there is a feeling you, you could take from a... Motor GP and actually probably take it into a, into a Formula One car. That so. is a, a good question, Tony. We've it gone is. off on a tangent there, but that was uh, total a good question. <laughs> like that one, yeah. It wouldn't have worked for me. I know that. So I'm glad you, Billy, weren't around, and you, Tony, you were around because <laughs> you're in my fan club. But I'm glad you didn't push it to happen. Yeah, because it would have been rather embarrassing. Rather embarrassing. I'll do a quick story about my embarrassing moment on my Ducati that I that I've still got actually. Never never ridden it, but in Monaco. There is a tunnel that goes through to Fonvier, from where the paddock is to Fonvier, and it, there's the police always barrier it off to stop people and obviously getting in the paddock. So I used to go out in the evening to to go back home, but I and it was like I don't know, it was like a one in ten heel that you had to go up to the barrier. The policeman was at the at the top, but it was never open, so you had to stop before you got On there. My hill. little leg struggled to sort of touch the ground, and Mister Policeman stuck his hand out and just went no. Nah. And basically spanned his hand finger around and basically told me to go back. So I'm stuck at a one in ten heel. Then I've got to go backwards. So oh, I thought, this is and how do I work this one? How do I work this one out? So I basically sort of rolled backwards. And then basically, of course, because it's a heel, my right foot as it was, it was another like eight inches further to go. So the bike goes. The, I've got the clutch in. I hold onto the throttle. I tried to put the bike down. Then I try to lift the bike up. But then I pull the throttle, so it goes up to about twelve thousand reps. Then it sort of goes back down again. And I'm and I'm, tr I'm struggling. I don't want to sort of drop it on its side. So eventually I had to. So I dropped it on its side and everything else, and and then tried to scramble it to sort of move it around so I could go back down the hill. Did Mister Policeman come to help? No. He just looked at me with an inner he laughing? chuckle. He was, I think it was an inner chuckle, an, an inner, inner laugh chuckle. that was going on because he just saw this this bloke on a bike struggling to sort of just do a sort of U-turn and go back. And there I was on the floor, bloody noise going off on the engine because I'm trying to pull the front and everything else. So anyway. So so what you're saying here, Johnny, is if, uh, if we ever did, you know, Chuck you on a MotoGP bike, we might want to put some stabilizers on it just in case. That would be much appreciated. <laughs> All right. I'm I sure we can do that. Yes. Right. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> Jennifer is the next question here. So, question for the podcast, uh, if you can. Lots of discussion about another trackside arena area at Silverstone being lost, meaning that you have to buy an expensive grandstand seat. Is F1 pricing itself out of the fan market? Personally, I prefer trackside in your deck chair rather than grandstand. That's got a better atmosphere. That's, that's from Jennifer. Is mm. pricing itself out? Yeah, and grandstands are taking over, basically. I mean, I, w I can kind of see it from both sides, really, because at Brands Hatch, for example, coming out of Paddock Hill... Yeah. There's no grandstand well, there. It's just all, you know, fan seating and just standing. And I remember going there when I was watching the touring cars when I first got into Formula 4. And it was a great view of the track. You could see them come through Paddock Hill. You could see them going up to Druids uh, yeah. and then back down to Graham Hill. You could see pretty much at least half the indie circuit just from standing. But then equally, if you go up into a hospitality um, seat, 
up yeah. by the main straight, you can see almost the whole circuit. So for me, I always judge it on whether you can see more in a grandstand or, you know, if you're standing on the side of the track and you can get a good view as well, then equally, I think both are good experiences in their, their own way. Obviously, at the atmosphere at the bottom of Paddock Hill for me, when I was um, watching the touring cars, that was, you know, the best place, maybe not the best place to watch every single corner but you saw a lot of the track and it was a good atmosphere so i don't i don't really sit here and think that we should just have grandstands i do think that having some form of being able to you know have your own deck chairs and to be able to stand and watch is still right for the fans to have that opportunity yeah and and again but i think there are certain spots on the circuit where you don't want a grandstand to come in and then push away those fans who have probably come there for many, many years and always yeah. got their deck chair in exactly the same place. The new generation come along, they do exactly the same thing. But of course, then the 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 added addition to that is the cost. Because yeah. obviously there was going to be a big cost. Now, we all know people you know, have different wages coming in. Certain people sacrifice a lot to be able to go to a, to a Grand Prix just to stand at the side of the track. Because yeah. that's what, while they enjoy... And secondly, maybe that's what they can afford. But I think grandstands are something that, yes, there's a, an income for the for the circuit. And I know how important that is for Silverstone, for example, to generate the the funds and the ability for the Grand Prix to continue every single year. So I know there are arguments uh, against uh, those grandstands. Um, but yeah, I don't think you should push away the fans from from that ability to actually standing right next to the track. You know, the grand says, I yeah, arguably, I suppose, can go slightly further back um, and then allow fans to be in the front of it in the normal fashion in their deck chairs. So, yeah, I, I get it, Jennifer, and I know it's not, a, not an easy one, but, of course, if there is your particular area that's gone, then there is a massive frustration because yeah. that, that's, that's what you did every single year and you love the atmosphere that was there like like she said yeah i think fundamentally it is a cost thing isn't it it's you don't yeah. want to price anyone out of not being able to go to formula one that can currently no. go and can afford to go so you know i think fundamentally if f1 can come up with a solution where you know if they want to build more grandstands but equally if they can do it you know where they they're not charging people no, and, and they can still keep low. still keep an element of the fans still being able to stand on the bank. Yeah, there needs to be there needs to be a balance, doesn't there? We can't it just a get to the stage where it's a grandstand the whole way around the edge of the track, and that's your only option. Um, you need to give people options to enjoy the Grand Prix how they want to enjoy it. Yeah, because because the other thing you'll get, you're actually lose fans. Yeah, as well, because they won't turn up because of that. And then yeah. what they're are they you know they it's probably quite an equal split. Actually, the grandstands, are the, or maybe more, actually, for the people who are standing around the circuit or Ooh. sitting in their deck chair, they're probably the majority, probably. And then yeah. they might get, you know, if you annoy them, they may not come back. And you yeah, don't want no. that either. We don't want so that. So it's a fine balance. No, fine balance. Okay. Last question. One more question, question before we're going to take a short break after this one. Um, DRS trains are constantly a topic in Formula One. Do you think a push-to-pass system like IndyCar would be better, and that's from Yasmin. So, yeah. DRS trains are constantly a topic. F1 push to par system in, in like IndyCar would be better. I mean, for me, I think DRS at the minute it does a, a decent enough job. You know, obviously, Formula One cars are, you know, the speeds they're going, it's tricky to overtake. IndyCar, I feel like, as a race series, you know, the way the cars are set up, you know, it, it, it allows and they're the same they're the same effectively as well yeah yeah, yeah. so the it allows closer racing which means the overtaking's more likely to happen anyway so I think I think it's hard to compare the two series in terms of um, from an overtaking point of view because they're just very different um, but DRS does a pretty good job obviously fundamentally what we need in Formula 1 it, I don't know about you, John. It's just closer racing, the cars being closer matched. So if people make a mistake, they're punished for it. The drivers, yes, ab- ab- absolutely. That's what it. That's what it should be. The difficulty is, yes, you've got you do IndyCar. Well, there is effectively a one make, one make series. So everybody's effectively the same. The best, the best teams who have the best mechanics and best engineers and the best guys who can set up the car, um, are the guys that sort of eventually win. 
racism yeah. win a championship. And the push to pass is probably a bit of a, if you want to put it this way, and I will put it this way, it's a bit, it's a bit of a gimmick, but it adds to the show. So it doesn't matter. Is it a gimmick? Well, yes, but does it matter? Well, no, because actually it does add to the race itself. And then the GRS thing is, yes, is you're absolutely right, Desmond. It's something that that topic has been going on for years and years and years. Yeah. Your purest fan, your purest fan doesn't like it. Once read of it. It's fake. It's not the right thing. It's not good and everything else. My argument would always be, you take it away, it will be as dull as mud. Yeah. It will be so boring because you don't get a slipstream effect. How? When was the last time we saw a Formula One pass that wasn't aided by DRS? It's so yes. rare. Yeah. Well, I remember it was, it was in Imola a couple of years ago where it, I think it was Imola where it, the system failed and no one had DRS. No, no one overtook. <laughs> so then was the proof in the pudding. It, it doesn't work. I, I don't like it. But the cars have changed so much from when I started doing Formula One, and even actually when I did Formula Three Thousand uh, as well. The cars created a massive hole in the air, which gave you the slipstream effect. And slipstreaming was still a thing. I go back to Formula Ford, you know yeah. that as well, Billy. It was always there because the cars weren't efficient. Because they weren't efficient, that's how you had, had slipstreaming. These modern day Formula One cars, especially, are so efficient through the air, they create a much smaller hole in the air. When you have a smaller hole, you have less slipstream effect. You still get it, but it's not to the same effect that many people, probably of a generation uh, uh, older than I am, would say, oh, it was better in the 70s. Yeah. There was a lot more overtaking. But there were two things that were different. One was you had a, a gear stick, and a lot of drivers used to miss gears over rev an engine, maybe the engine blew up as well. But generally, most of the overtaking is done when the shift was 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 done wrong. Yeah. Um, you can't do that anymore because obviously the, the paddle shift, it doesn't, there are no mistakes up or down. So yeah. that's very, very different. And then secondly, they were just, the hole that they used to create in the air was so damn big. That's where the slipstream came into effect. So it's very difficult to sort of say, ah, it was better back then. It was different back then. But you can't apply the same slipstream slipstreaming rules today because it doesn't exist yeah. anywhere near as much. And it's very hard to explain it. I only had it, I remember right, right near the end of my career when I followed Giancarlo Fisichella in Nürburgring when I was at Stewart. Um, and I remember getting that behind him and I had no slipstream whatsoever. Nothing. And it was like, wow. This is just an, another world that we're going into. And I think that's where DRS comes into it. And I agree with you, Billy. It works as far as I'm I'm concerned. Is it perfect? No. Is a push to pass perfect? No, it's not. Yeah. But I think the fundamentals of what we have in F1, I think it works as a whole. But it's a very hard thing to manage, as you know, Billy, because the guys at the front and the guys at the back are completely different cars and to try and get the correct balance to front to back is is impossible yeah because they all they they will all be very very different how they react to the DRS itself to the drag that each car is producing anyway with the with the wings that are still there even with the DRS deployed um but i think i think it works because there still is there was still is overtaking it gives them opportunities to do it sometimes the timing is not quite right because because they overtake halfway down the straight it's a little bit better now i must admit but that's because of the, the cars are so different so the effect is going to be so so different but as a whole the effect works personally please don't push to get rid of it because you'll regret it yeah I, I believe yeah i agree mate i agree right we're going to take a, a quick break and then we'll be back with more of your questions just after When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So welcome back to the podcast, guys. More of uh, the team radio episode coming up right now. So some more questions from you guys. We're going to start off with Tim. Go on, Ed Billy. So Tim, yeah. With so many drivers going on to thrive in other series, is there a past Formula One driver you believe should have been given more of a chance slash time in a Formula One? That's from Tim there, that question. I mean, it's always... It's a youngster. Isn't it? There's there's definitely yeah. probably a couple of names for me that you go, yeah, they, they deserved more of a time in Formula One. But equally, Formula One's the toughest series for a reason. So, you know, if you're... If you, you're good enough, normally you manage to find a way to last. Yeah, um, but you know there 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 are there are drivers that I think should have should have given a chance. You know, there was one who went through a lot in his in his in his career from from karting and get himself into to motorsport uh, as well, and was was doing brilliantly uh, up until uh, and he's wearing a beanie hat at the present time, and he's he's in front of my face. That's a prime example of where things could have been so, so different, isn't it? It's just things, sometimes, unfairly, never, I never quite understand why why it happens. A bit like maybe my crash as well. Why, why we had to have the crash? Why it had to be so awful in better respects? I really don't know. But it stopped you showing that talent that you, that you still got. Yeah. But of course, it's harder to show the talent because of the situations... Uh, that that happened to you. So so someone like Biddy is, is a prime example of that. Any past F one drivers? Anyone yeah. that used to be in F one for a little bit and then faded away? I mean for me I would say um someone like a, a Robert Kubitza I, I sometimes look yeah, at sure. you know that's someone that's again same, he was winning thing. races and yes. then had his accident and, and then he was wanting to do this and again that's of course it's just some stuff outside it. And it was like, why? And now looking back, you're saying, why did you want to do it then? Why not do your career, win your world championship, then go and do a bit of rallying? Yeah. Why in the middle of this monumental rise that he was having at that, at that given period, did you want to risk it? You know, and that's, uh, it's it's very sad. So yeah, Robert's one that, again, we never really saw the best of. Someone that didn't have an accident that I think, again, I, I think has got a lot of talent and speed that, you know, now we're seeing one of his teammates how well he's doing it kind of makes me think was it was he good enough but he was just alongside one of the greats was Stoffel Van Dorn yeah so I do look at Van Dorn you know he went he's one Formula E you know um ex-Formula One driver but he was teammates with Fernando Alonso and now Fernando's in a quick car we're seeing what Fernando's capable of doing you know he's being Lance Stroll on a regular basis but he's getting podium after podium and it does make me think that you know and okay, maybe he wasn't as good as Fernando, but was but, he still good enough to, you know, be a Formula One driver? And my gut says, yeah, he probably is as good enough to be on that grid still. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, I go Jean Eric Fern. There's another nice, one. Nice. And yeah, I saw Jean Eric yeah. in Formula Three, and I remember seeing. Him, I think the first time I, I saw him and met him was in Spa when he was doing Formula Three, and he was dominated, absolutely dominated. Then he got his opportunity. And then it sort of didn't happen. And I think, it, well, I say it didn't happen, it's very unfair, because I think he, when he was in that tour of Russia, there was a point where, for whatever reason, they had a massive clear out, didn't they, of their drivers. Yeah. And it was unfair. They, they you know, it's uh, Boemi. It's another yeah. one. Same thing, cleared out. But, uh, you know, have achieved a lot when he's gone to the more Formula E champion as well. John yeah. Everett, Formula E champion as well. Now, you're not, you're not, you're not saying to me that they're just, well, they're better because it's Formula One. It's not as good as Formula One. No, they still have the talent. It just wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't helped in the probably the right but way. But John Eric Vern is definitely a, is a good one. Yeah. Because he was obviously teammates at Toro Rosso with Daniel Ricciardo. 
yeah. who then got the opportunity to, you know, take the step up into Red Bull. And we saw what Daniel was able to do against Sebastian, you know, getting that opportunity. And John Eric Verne and Daniel were super closely matched from what I can remember at their yeah. time in Toro Rosso. So, you know, you're potentially talking about a driver in John Eric Verne who could have on his day been beating Sebastian Vettel, a four time world champion and a great at the sport. So yeah. that kind of shows the level of talent that people like that have got. But just again, the way that things unfolded, he didn't get that opportunity. No, and I, and I, and I think it's, it's, and it's horrible. Race pace, sorry for, wow, was really good. Still very, very good today. The only issue that he had when he was F1, and that was probably the question mark that probably, probably came up, was the qualifying. The qualifying was never quite as good as what probably it was expected to be because obviously he always see he had the race pace. But the qualifying was always where he struggled. And it's not just because he struggled a little bit. Of course, you're further back. You're two, three, four, five places further back than you should be. Yeah. Then you're making your life more difficult in a race, although you race better, but you're going to have to overtake five more to start with. Yeah. So you should have been five further ahead where you sort of ended up type thing. So he just made his life a little bit more difficult. But from talent, yeah, he's one we should, could have seen more. Verline's another one, actually. I don't know about what you think about uh, Pascal Verline. Same thing. Yeah. Really seeing he's come into, gone into Formula E and he's sort of adapted to it and he's been doing very well. He's been fighting for championships, um, but we never saw the best of him either. Yeah, it's definitely, you could go on for days, couldn't you? Yeah, the could. world motorsport is cutthroat, isn't it? And unfortunately, there are a lot of these names that, you know, people that are new to Formula 1, um, people yeah. that are, yeah, the new fans, they might never have heard of. No. Alan McNish, here. there's another one. Alan McNish, did one year at Toyota, bang, gone. Tom, Tom Christensen, tested for Jaguar with Michelin tyres, never got a chance in F1, and multiple Le Mans winners, both of them. So it's, 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 it's unfair sometimes, but that's life, it's isn't just it? the way the cookie crumbles. Yes, exactly. Life's not always fair. That's no. for sure. That's for sure. And they've all gone on to, you know, all exactly. these drivers we're mentioning, they've gone on to yep. win championships outside of Formula One and have good careers. So, you know, they, they've still managed to do great things in the world of motorsport, but maybe not just, you know, broken that Formula One barrier and, and become one of the more well-known greats, I guess. No, exactly. So it's always something that's a little bit more, So sometimes a, a, hard, a, hard, a pill a hard to swallow. Sometimes. Yeah. That wasn't said in the right way, but anyway, that was close enough. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. So, David, he's our next, next one there. So, right. There have been rumours about classic tracks like Spa and Zanville alternating on the calendar. Do you think this is a good compromise to keep the old tracks while expanding into new markets? Think about that. Mm, I mean, mm. alternating on the calendar just doesn't sit right with me. But to uh, keep them. But to keep them in order to keep them, yeah, is, is it? I mean, you you want you just want them to be on the calendar just because they're great circuits. Indeed, just, I think that's where I look at it. I think you know if it, if it's a great track, if it provides good racing, and if it's a classic that's been on the calendar for years, that has been a proving ground for Formula One world champion after Formula One world champion, then it feels madness to me to get rid of places like that where you'd know that if people can go around spa for example and they can win a grand prix around spa you go they're capable of winning a grand prix anywhere that's just because of the history and the yeah like i say because it's been in the sport for so long it's a proving ground for these you know world champions and it just feels that as much as you know we're expanding the calendar year after year we're going to different place after different place Formula yeah. One, as much as it's a business, it shouldn't all be about the money. There should be an element of you've got to keep the core, the fundamentals of the you sport have, intact. You have, Billy. The interesting thing, we go back to Jennifer's question about being on the bank with your you know, your chair and everything else and grandstand starting to appear. Now, we're talking about old tracks. Now, why are we talking about old tracks disappearing? Well, a lot of it's because of finance. That's why Nürburgring, we don't have because of finance. We don't have Hockenheim because of the finance of running the whole Great show. Track, the yeah. cost of running a Grand Prix is is massive. Now, the yeah. new countries of the world, I always remember Bahrain, prime example of that. I hadn't heard of Bahrain, but because of Formula 1, but let's say, look, buying Formula 1, taking it to Bahrain, building a circuit and everything else that goes with it, um, everybody knows about Bahrain. 
and yeah. it's on the world map. So, so it was done in a in a in a particular way that that worked brilliantly. They like their motorsport out there anyway, which is which is a positive thing. Then you cross over to Europe, and it's a very different business. And Silverstone is one of those where it's it's got to adapt to these modern times that we have, where it's it, the government don't give it money because they think Formula One and motorsport is just sort of full of money, which it is to a degree, but it doesn't go to a track. No, they're given to a track. That, yeah. A track has to generate its own money. Again, that's a normal business model, I suppose. But things get more and more expensive as we're all suffering through it at the present time. Um, but they have to find ways of being able to do that. And by by having MotoGP there, uh, I think they've lost the WEC. Unfortunately, that's one thing that actually sort of brought in more uh, money as well to Silverstone. That's not happening at, uh, at the moment. So there are certain races that do create more money for you to be able to survive, just yeah. survive. And then you've got to be able to put on the big show when the Formula One race goes there, MotoGP, uh, et cetera, but mainly Formula One. So it's a very hard thing to do that. So alternating, does it help some of those circuits survive? Well, it might do. Long to long term, do you think it's sort of a positive thing because it's going to be alternating? So then losing out one year, yeah, so not getting anything to then be expected to be available for the following year, but they've had no income, that Formula One income, to be able to support it. Yeah, that's what yeah. I mean. It's it, it does kind of feel to me that that's not the the best approach. I feel like you've got to you know keep the momentum up at places like this. You know they. If they drop off the calendar for a year, you know what it's like in the world of Formula One with drivers. If a driver takes a year out of Formula One, people start forgetting about them, you know, and it, they do, you know, their, you know, reputation and the momentum of their career can, they that can be the end of their career sometimes, just taking a year out. So it does feel like to me, if you're doing that with circuits, if you're, you know, picking and choosing year on year, which circuit, classic yeah. circuit you go to, you're just going to, you know, potentially risk killing the momentum and the history of the, the places you go to and eventually there'll be no reason to go back there. No, but but it is important to keep the likes of, for example, Spa, Silverstone, Monza. Yeah. Even Hungary. Love love going yeah. to Hungary to be perfectly honest. Yeah. So, yeah, let's try and keep some of those well, we want to keep those European circuits because they're not just European circuits. They're not just, you know, pretty much part of motorsport formula one's history they're dang good tracks they're great don't tracks. lose the good challenging tracks that, that we've got suzuka another one you know we don't want to lose somewhere somewhere like suzuka outside europe yes but it's an old school track yeah under one those yeah right cool. couple questions left this one's from graham uh with bridgestone looking at bidding for the tire supply do you think it's time that there was someone else in the sport supplying tires and do you think a tire war is a good idea and that's from Graham. I love a tire I mean, war. you'd love a tire war. I was going to say, Johnny, this is more up your street because, you know, when you were driving, you know, there was, again, that was a, a thing, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a big thing, yes. Where, well, before my time, it was sort of Goodyear, Michigan, Pirelli. Uh, then there was uh, Goodyear, Goodyear, Bridgestone. I'll meet Goodyear, Michelin, and then, then Bridgestone came on the scene. Then it was all Bridgestones. So there's always been those... Tire was, and of course, tire was normally when you're talking about qualifying tires, that was always where the war was, uh, because those things were just unbelievable. And for those who don't know what a qualifying tire is, well, it was designed and built to do one and one lap only. But my goodness, the How grip, grip yeah. the grip it gave, you know, from Carlton Billy, the grip level it gave was just mind but I'm actually talking with a smile on my face because yeah. it, it was awesome because it was the ultimate, the yeah. absolute the car ultimate on rails that you'd ever, ever do. It's an ultimate lap you've got today, but it's a different ultimate lap because actually, no, you could put a softer tire on and go much, much faster, much, yeah. much, much, much faster, seconds, multiple seconds. But it was a big challenge. But of course, the speeds of the cars were going, getting faster and faster and faster, which was where the sort of that tire war side of it got stopped probably... Um, yeah, in the sort of the early nineties, I, su I suppose it was. So, did it did it generate better racing? In some ways, yes, because I suppose there was certain circuits one was better than the other. 
And then it would sort of, you know, a little be a little bit more competitive from a championship point of view. Sometimes it was pretty much dominated maybe by by one tire manufacturer. But overall, I enjoyed it. But I understand the reasons why that hasn't happened. Would it be accepted now? Probably not, because one one team possibly is going to get an advantage by having a different tire on it. Because I always remember when I it was Goodyear and Bridgestone. And I remember I was at Sauber at the time. We had a discussion, you know, should we do the Bridgestones? And I'd done Bridgestones when I, after I broke my legs and I was in Japan. And their engineering was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And we sort of chat, should we, shouldn't we uh, go for that one? And, and we didn't. And it probably actually looking back was a mistake because they were so good in, in one lap. They were very, very good. Uh, and they were so consistent. A, a Bridgestone would be good for probably qualifying. It was faster than probably a, a, a Bridgestone, probably. But it would only be good for about two or three laps. Then there was a drop. And if you looked after them, you could get that tire to come back. But a Bridgestone just was just leveled yeah. the whole way through. Well, actually, it went faster and faster. The car got lighter and lighter. It got faster and faster. And the tire, the tire grip got higher. It just went faster. And the Bridgestone would always, sorry, the Goodyear would always have a bit of a the struggle. Michelin were very good as, as well. They had a massive ability to be very consistent at the same time. So, do you think it's yeah? In terms of what we've got now yeah. in Formula One, with you know all the different compounds of tires, but only using Pirelli, do you think that it's it would benefit Formula One? Do you think it would add to the sport, or do you think at this point it's just a little bit maybe too much with everything we've already got going on with sprint yeah, races well, with this. Well, here's that. a question to you. Here's a question for okay. you as well, Billy. Right. So you'll have a tire that is ultra consistent. Yeah. Okay. And you'll get a tire that falls off the cliff. Yeah. Quite often per race. What one would you like? It, obviously, as a driver, you want the consistent tire. Okay. From a yeah. show point of view. From a show point of view, you want the tire that can fall off a cliff because then that yeah. adds, adds something to think about and to, to watch. You know, you might yes. drive a that is good in the race that can manage it and not hit the cliff with the tire and keep it yeah. alive for longer and benefit from it. And then you have drivers that just want a tire they can push on the whole race that might not be able to manage it as well That where it falls off a cliff. But, you know, it's good for the entertainment of the sport. So... Yeah. That's sort of how I see it, but it's, I there's two drivers I'm going to mention here who are completely different, and they're famous for being completely different. One is the professor, Alan Prost, you know, had an amazing ability to be able to look after the tyre, to get the best out of the tyre, because you actually had to adapt your driving style to the way the tyre was was working during that, that particular race. But he had an absolutely fantastic ability to be able to get the best out of the tyre. Then you go the other way, and it was all about sheer performance and push, 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 push. Every single race was Michael Schumacher. Completely different styles in different periods, of course. Um, but what one was was probably more interesting? Well, actually, it was probably when it was sort of Alan's period because when Michael had that dominating time at Ferrari, and it was brilliant. What yeah, Ferrari, I think Ross Brawn and Rory Burn and everything I, else did. You know, well, but, you've just raised a good point there for me because I think I look at Formula One this year and you think Max Stappen and Red Bull have got such a great combination already that if they had a tyre where, you know, it was good for a lap and qualifying and in the race it just sat there and stayed the same, I feel like you'd just drive off yeah. into the distance. I feel like the fact that you do have to manage stuff and, you know, not push the tyre too hard as we currently have them before they fall off a cliff with the high degradation, yeah. I feel like that helps bring the racing closer. I think if you gave Max Verstappen a tyre that he could push lap in, lap out um, on currently, that, yeah, that would make it the gaps even bigger. So I think for me, that kind of answers the question right there. I think pretty much as, as it yeah. stands, I think, you know, maybe a tyre wall would, you know, would bring something to it. But I think actually the tyres we've got right now they do provide a challenge for the drivers, which I think makes the racing a bit closer. And the engineers. It's a challenge for the engineers as well to be able to try and get on top of the tyre. And that and that's what, for me, that's what it's all about. It's the ability to to somehow work out the best way with something that's not perfect, that's not easy to drive, not consistent the whole way through. It has difficult periods and the tyre compounds are different and work at certain places but don't work at others 
I mean, you hear it's drivers nowadays way. on the radio mm. talking about, you know, they're in a graining phase with the tyre, the tyre's graining up, and then they can manage to drive through that, and then the yeah. tyre comes back to them. Yeah, so and that's always the, been all, part of it. All this it. stuff is, yeah. is good. Yeah, that graining, you know, it's like degradation. It's a, it's a word that never got used in my tyre. It just went, the tyre's gone off. It was yeah. never used as degradation. I just remember, never used by any engineer I ever worked with about degradation. Then slowly it comes in now. So it's like degradation's new. It's not new. Something that's happened for decades and always been been part of it, but degradation sometimes show why those greats of that particular sport that at that particular time are great because they are able to sort of get the best from the from the tire even when it's sort of not really doing what they wanted to do. And that's where I want the drivers to be tested. I want it to be tested in a way that they have to deal with it. They have to work out a way around it. And I hear drivers sometimes say, well, you can't when the tyre goes off. You've got to back off one second. No, you don't have to back off one second. You've just got to drive it cleanly. Don't abuse it. As soon as you abuse it, yes, you're going to damage it. You, you, it's the skill for the one who can probably get the best out of it by backing off one to two tenths to someone who has to do a second. That's your difference. That's the skill. That's what I I would get wild, wild by. Yeah, I completely well, agree, mate. Final question then. then, Johnny. Yes. What's the best summer sporting event? Silverstone, Wimbledon, or the Ashes from Thomas? Stupid question. What we have the the, we'll talk about stupid questions. And, event? Uh, Thomas, Thomas, it is stupid question. We're finishing on a stupid question. Because it's clearly yes. Wimbledon. No, sorry, no. So, yeah, so, yeah oh, Silverstone. Sorry, Silver, Silverstone. Yeah, it's Silverstone. Again, we're petrol heads. We, we love it. I hope you're a petrol head, Thomas, because the whole event. And as years have gone by, it's evolved. There's more to... When I went there, there was just a circuit, a Grand Prix, and, and a couple of burger bars sort of stuck around it. And now there's there's so much other stuff that you can bring a family along and there's, there's things for them to learn about Formula One, to learn about motorsport, entertainment, the music that you sort of get there as well, which is never there in the very early days I was there. So I like what... Formula One and Silverstone uh, are able to bring, and I have to give a big, a big, well, give a big clap to Silverstone for being able to change the circuit, change everything that happens within the circuit to make it a better experience for everybody because they have achieved that. And I think we, you know, the Ashes and the Wimbledon, it's a, it's a smaller environment. Yes, there's certain things that go on with in Wimbledon. It's probably a little bit less probably when you go to the cricket, I suppose. From a show perspective, totally get the Ashes, totally get what Wimbledon's all about. But as a whole, as a spectacle, personally, of course, it's always going to be very sort of personally pushing towards one way and one way only. Yeah, we're biased, Johnny. <laughs> we it. both you love Silverstone. Exactly. Forget the rest. <laughs> we love Silverstone. <laughs> That's, there's your answer, Thomas. Indeed. Great start. Like Johnny said, Stupid question, <laughs> but we love it. You got it. You got it. You got it. Best stupid question we've had, Thomas. Well, I think, <laughs> yeah, the best one, best one we've had. Great. Perfect. That's it, then, mate. That's the team radio episode done. Some great yeah, questions good. in there. Some we, we went off on yeah, a few that's tangents, right. but that's because the questions were so good. That's because they got us thinking. So I really enjoyed Dude. that one. Remember, guys, we're obviously going to continue doing these team radio episodes as long as you guys send in your questions. So if you've got any questions, no matter. How stupid that's... they are, send them our way. We're happy to answer them. So that's it for us for this week. It is. That's it. Yeah, really enjoyed that. And we'll be back uh, with another team radio episode for you guys in not too long. So for now, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care. This has been a Soapbox London and SBX Studios production. Our executive producers were Rowan Wilkinson and Andy Bell. Andy Bell.